I've, I've been titled this Loving the Real God. Loving the Real God, which is harder than we may think. I love this season of Epiphany because it's about God wanting to reveal Himself. His deepest desire is that we would know Him, we would know His power. We would know that he's a God for the nations. That's why we have the wise men coming from the east representing the Gentiles. That Gentiles will be drawn to his light. So the question is, how do you view God? Who is your God? In our reading, in a few hours, this is on the eve of his crucifixion. In a few hours, he's going to be dead. Suffering the most excruciating form of death, crucifixion, known to man at that time. And yet Jesus speaks with great certainty and promise to his disciples. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And from now on you do know him and have seen him. To which Philip responds, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. There's a sense of this tinge of disappointment, I think, in Jesus' voice as he asks Philip this sort of penetrating question. Don't you know me? You know, I think all of us can relate to that sometimes. It's like, people don't really know me. They're they're assuming some things. Philip, don't you know me? Even uh, after I have been among you such a long time. You see, Philip had walked with Jesus. He'd been invited to be one of his closest friends. But he didn't really know him. We can be very close to the things of God and not really know him. And it's a process. It's a lifelong process of building relationship and growing in the knowledge. So the question is, do you know your God? What is your view of God? Now our calling is to love the real God, because in that is freedom. Jesus was uh, asked by a scribe once what the greatest commandment was. And he said... Love the Lord your God with all your... Sorry, first of all, he said, Hear, O Israel. So he's quoting the Shema, which is a very Jewish prayer. In fact, the very identity of the Jew would be wrapped up in this regular daily prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your entire mind and all your strength. And then he jumps from (coughs) Deuteronomy to Leviticus. You all love Leviticus? It's pretty hard work. But if you know any verse in Leviticus, know this verse. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That was from Mark's Gospel. This became known as the Great Commandment. And we, we often in the church remember this on Monday, Thursday, when Jesus renews that commandment and says, A new commandment I give you. What, there's another one? He says, Love one another. You see, this is the great commandment because it's a reflection of the nature of God. And we're going to reflect over these coming weeks around this great commandment. What does that mean? What does that look like? How might we grow in this? And how might we model this to a world who is desperately, really hungry for it to be loved? Because that is how God has created it. The Lord is one. Those words are really a declaration that that the God who has revealed himself to Israel is the real God. 
And we'll never really truly be able to appreciate and experience this great commandment love for God if we don't grow in our understanding of the nature of the God who loves us. As we invite the Holy Spirit to give us a clearer vision of the reality of who he is. Because our view of God is so easily distorted. In fact, I would suggest that right now all of us have a distorted view of God. Challenge me on that later. Because we see through a glass dimly. It's not that God doesn't want to reveal himself. It's just that, you know, he's patient. He's working with us. And our distorted view can often impede our ability to love him and to love other people well. This is why it's so important that we, we camp out here, I believe, a little bit. How do you view God? There's a story Jesus, well, it's, it's a, an episode in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 19, about a, a man called Zacchaeus. Some of you will be familiar with the story. We, we learn it often if we're in Sunday schools as children because we sing a, a song about uh, the little man Zacchaeus. Do you all remember that song? Yeah, yeah. Well, he was a wealthy tax collector in Jericho, and he wanted to know God. He wanted to see Jesus as he passed through. And we're told because of his stature, he was a short man, he climbed a sycamore tree. And when Jesus, with the crowd swelling, reached Zacchaeus, he looked up and immediately said he was to go to his house with him. Now, tax collectors were effectively traitors to the people of Israel. They were often a hated people. They obtained their wealth by cheating, by stealing from um, their own people, embezzling money. And they were not well liked within their community. And yet Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and says, you're the one. I want to come to your house tonight. I want you to imagine yourself as Zacchaeus. You see, we participate in this story. It's like we're up the tree and we're imagining ourselves and Jesus is coming by and we long to see him like Zacchaeus. But as we look down, what goes through our minds? And when Jesus stops below and he, and he looks up, what do we imagine he would think? Because he sees you as you are. And unfortunately, we see ourselves sometimes as we are. And that voice of condemnation, that voice of disappointment, that voice of, will he even see me or notice me? In all these crowds... Now, there are, there are some of these um, themes that get in the way that distort our view of God. And one is, whether we may see God as an inspecting kind of God. He examines our motives and our hearts and our behavior. And then he's going to relate to us, depending on what he feels about what he sees. How good we are, how bad we are, because that's just how the way things work. And in fact, our thought is often, I guess he's just waiting to catch me when I slip up. Because that's who God is. God's the inspecting kind of God. You know, I used to, uh, and, and we can all struggle with some aspects of these. I wouldn't say this is a dominant one for me, but there are times, I remember earlier on in our relationship, because this plays out in our human relationships. How we see and know God and what we think he, he, he believes about us. We transpose that onto our human relationship. And sometimes Carol would ask me, so something very innocent and uh, caring, like, what have you been doing today? And that innocent question would be filtered through my, my insecurity as, 
Well, she's checking up if I've been doing enough and I've been good enough. And have I been busy enough? And have I got it sufficient done to merit being her husband and for her to think good thoughts about me? That's how broken we can be at times. We don't aim to be like this. It's just something that comes upon us through our experiences. It's difficult to love a God who's an inspecting God. I worked with a guy whose father was a military sergeant major. He would come into his room and drop a coin on his bed and if it didn't bounce, he would rip the covers off and tell him to make it again. Do you think that affected how he related to God? Is your God an inspecting God? Or is your God a disappointed God? Have we got these on the screen, Gene? There we go. A disappointed God. Maybe a bit like Jesus with Philip. He sort of looks at us and he shakes his head a little bit in disappointment. There he goes again. You know, no matter how many good and positive things we do, we just know deep down it's never enough. It's like we bring the report card and we've got all those A's, but there's a B, and what does Dad comment on? Why'd you get a B? There's a tinge of disappointment all the time. It's never enough. We're never good enough. Had a little bit of a run-in with a policeman yesterday. Met the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He wasn't on a horse. He was on a car with flashing lights. <laughs> wasn't a good day yesterday in some ways. And um, actually he was, he was fairly gracious. We got chatting with him. Found out he lived in Houston, Texas. I was trying to be personable. And, um, but he essentially pulled me over because I had tinted windows, which seemed a bit weird to him in the Northwest apparently. Uh, which caused him to see I had Texas plates, which caused him to ask, how long have you been here? And I'd been here too long without relicensing. And my insurance was a bit iffy, and he was going to tour my vehicle and take my plates. A little bit disappointing. I will tell you the rest of the story. You can come and ask me about it. It ended reasonably well. But a little bit later, actually Carol asked me another question that, that was hard. It was like, didn't you know about the 30 days? <laughs> And, um, you know, I, I kind of usually take great responsibility on those things and I'm pretty organized and planned. But, boy, we had a one in ten year storm. We had snow. We had a trip back to Texas. And, lo and behold, it slipped my mind. But um, I was disappointed with myself. And often that's a reflection, can be, of how we feel God is with us as well. But a third one would be that God is kind of a distant God. Is God a distant God? He's busy, but he's not really involved in my life. There's too many other things to be going on. Man, this world is so big and complex. What are we, seven and a half billion people? Does he really see and know me? Does he care about me? Does he take interest in me? Several years ago, we were walking, uh, just like this Christmas actually, I think it might have been Thanksgiving. Our son and young family were with us in Austin and his wife went to the University of Texas, which is downtown Austin. And we're wandering through the campus and <coughs> at one point I found myself, I'd walked ahead because I would have a tendency to do this, partly because I walk quickly, but partly I just get lost in my world. And, and actually part of this comes out of, kind of, I've lived a lot of aloneness in my life, not through choice necessarily, but I kind of get used to that. And he shouted to me and said, you can walk with us, Dad. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of uh, just a reminder that he wants to be with me. 
in fact it's lovely this this break we just had one morning I was down earlier in my my kind of study area uh, reading somebody came in and he just sat in the study and we just chatted and connected and that felt like a great time and um, you know these are just rich opportunities to be together but I grew up in a context where you know I've talked a little bit about sadly my relationship with my dad was pretty distant so again God can seem distant it's so hard to think of a God who's intimately acquainted with me and really loves me and likes me and so the challenge in all this is we often treat one another the way we believe or we sense God in our subconscious treats and loves us inspecting, judgmental we are disappointed with one another we can be critical or distant and hold ourselves back we can be fearful of and controlling of in order to get a sense of security it can be often because of the nature of God to us it can be hard for us to really deeply trust other people so how about you? What's an area of challenge for you? Man will be predominantly more the distant. You might have something else that you tend to go to. Ponder that. And you may, you may have grown through that, but it may have been a part of a struggle in the past. Just take a moment and share with the person next to you if any of this resonates, if there's an aspect of this that you find yourself at times struggling with, that God might be like this for me. That's good, see, isn't it? That takes some vulnerability. But hey, I'm being vulnerable with you. Take a risk. And as if somebody shares with you, just listen compassionately. Don't try to fix it. Don't give them scriptures. Don't tell them why that's wrong. That's just their story. That's their reality. Care about that. Just listen. I'll give you a minute. I know you didn't think you had to do work when I'm talking, did you? See, a part of me is also challenged even telling you that I may not see God fully as he is because I want you to think that I'm a pretty neat guy. I'm not a bad pastor. I have a good understanding of theology. But, you know, this is just all of our realities. And so even that thought that it's kind of wrong to say that I didn't have it all together. No, this is just how we are. This is the, the place we can be in. And we can help one another. So how do we help one another? How do we grow? How do we move towards the place God wants us to be to live in greater freedom of and enjoyment of who he really is? How do we change our perception? For that, we need light. We need light. This is why Epiphany is so good. And, it, and Christmas, it's about light coming in to dispel darkness. Arise, shine, your light has come. You thought I was like this, but I'm like this. Receive me. Those who receive him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children. Blessed, forgiven, holy, free. But it's hard to receive that, you see. When the light is brightest, very often the darkness rears its head. At the same time that the light came to reveal the glory of God, not just to Israel, but to the nations of the world, the imperial forces of Herod sought the destruction of of every child under two years old born in that community. Can you imagine the horror of the Christmas story? And on a day we celebrate the Feast of the Holy Innocents. We've got to be careful with increased light comes the potential for the enemy to be upset by that. And he will disturb us afresh. 
But the real God wants relationship. The real God is attentive and caring to us and who we are. And he wants to be your intimate friend. Later on in Isaiah 62, you shall no longer be termed forsaken. Has anyone ever felt forsaken? Nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. Has it felt like your life is desolate? But you shall be called, well in the New King James, it's Hepzibah and your land Beulah, because those words mean, for the Lord delights in you. And the Lord shall be married to you. The Lord shall be one with you. He loves you so much. He go, the, the prophet goes on, for as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Remember you, any of you young bridegrooms, remember those days, your sense of rejoicing over your bride. Another person you'd grown to love who'd given themselves to you. That's just a snippet of an insight into the measure of God's delight in you today. He longs for you. He's excited to know you. He's your creator. He sees you as the, ma- he's the master creator who's the one who assigns value to you because he created you. He knows what you are worth. You're unique and wonderfully made, the psalmist tells us. And Zacchaeus got a taste of this when this God came into his house and had fellowship with him and it changed his life. You see, light came in where there was once darkness and alienation and desolation. Hallelujah. He was thrilled to be with the Lord and he set out to repay and repair the damage that he had done. The real God in Jesus is not inspecting. He's not a disappointed God. He's not a distant God. But he's excited to be your friend and he wants the very best for you. And the moment you awake in the morning, he's thrilled that he gets to spend the day with you. So our calling is to love the real God, and I haven't got a lot of time for this, but we're going to explore the implications of all of this over these coming weeks. Loving the real God empowers a love for others. So John, who wrote this gospel, wrote in his letter, no one has ever seen God, which is interesting because he was the one who was there when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But he also says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If we love one another, that's the new commandment. That's why knowing the real God empowers us to love other people because in doing so, we get to experience more of the love of God. We cannot separate these two things. We are called to live and love in a way that helps others experience the Christ as he truly is. Because just like you, others have developed a sense and understanding, a perception of God based upon human relationships. It starts the moment we exit the womb. And it never stops. So we're called to to challenge and encourage one another to see God as he is and to express his love for all. That's why we gather I almost feel that this, we're going to become a, I read this expression, a studio of love. We were talking about the love boat the other day. Well, the idea of a, 
you know, a school of love is okay, but that's kind of about information. A studio, when musicians come together, is you kind of experience and play together to connect and practice and get in, in rhythm and in tune together. And that's what I sense the Lord wants to do with us as a community. You seem all really excited about that. Are we loving one another such that it shocks people and it demonstrates to them that we're Jesus' disciples and followers? But he said, it's your love for one another that will speak to people about me. It's that important. And it comes from are being loved by him. So when somebody fails, we accept them and we affirm them. When somebody shares a struggle, we encourage them and we comfort them. When someone is lonely, we enter their world and we care for them. You see, the whole of Jesus' mission is to reveal the Father, but more so to, that we would experience the Father's love. And that's why it's important that we're going to spend some time on this. This is not to say you've not been doing this. But as Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he affirms them for their love for one another, he also says, I want you to do so more and more. Keep growing in this love for one another. Number four, loving the real God frees us to see ourselves as the beloved of God. It's, it's like a cycle of as we <coughs> love him, we start to love ourselves more. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. We've got to grow in how we love and see ourselves. We are the beloved of God. The Father has declared us worthy of his love regardless of our performance and how good we are. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Because we've not always experienced that from one another and from others in our lives. This is the love that changes us. It is freely given and it is patient, it is kind. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Let us become a people who love like this. God our creator who determines our values demonstrates that by sending his son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. Don't doubt the love of God for you and your worthiness of that love. It's because you were created by him and for him, not because you're good enough and you deserve it. But we get wrapped up in that, you see, because we think God isn't inspecting God or we see him as a bit disappointed, so I must not be worth it. No, that's the enemy's lie. He is the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren. So we need light. We need truth. So here's a little verse. I'll finish with this because I better get off the stage. Um, there's a verse in this same chapter of John 15, a little bit later, where Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey my commands. How do you hear that verse? It's a good kind of diagnosis, a self-diagnosis. Because if our tendency is to think, you know, God is kind of the expecting God, it's kind of, well, if only you'd love me. If you'd only been good enough. and If you'd only obeyed my commands, you might have made the grade. It's like there's a test to be passed. The disappointed God, he's, he's kind of, if you'd loved me, you would have obeyed my commands. We sing the song with Zacchaeus, with Jesus pointing his finger. That's actually not in the text. But we tend to think, I guess that's what he's like, you, 
get yourself down here and come into your house because we've got a few things to sort out. No. If you love me, you'd have obeyed my commands. Or maybe the distant God is, yeah, if you love me, you'd obey my commands. Catch you later. I'm on to others who do love me. You know, this verse is a promise, I believe. It's set in the midst of five or six promises throughout that chapter that Jesus gives. And the promise is, don't worry about the commands, just love me. Because if you do, you won't be able to do anything else. It's like Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. To walk in the Spirit is to walk in love. The new commandment. Just pause and reflect that when you woke this morning... God was excited for the day. He was excited to love you. So love yourselves a little more. And allow others to do that for you too. And finally, very quickly, loving the real God invites us into friendship. Jesus says, I call you my most intimate friends, for I reveal to you everything that I've heard from my Father. Friendship is foundational to this relationship with God. The friend of Abraham, the friend of Moses, the one who says to his followers, I I call you my friends, you're no longer my servants, you're my friends. Friendship is so key to our loving others. And often I meet with men who who really don't have friends, they struggle with friendship, particularly as they get older in life, because we're we're not in the rhythm of hanging out with people, like when we're in school and college and fit and playing things. But we are wired for friendship intimate deep friendship and friendship with God is foundational to our engaging in friendship with others the master served his friends he loved his friends he shared everything with those friends that whom he chose to love and he chooses to love you in the same way as well will you receive that and will you give it away can we be a community of friendship can we be known as those who love well because we know we are loved well that's my prayer that's my longing let's just bow our heads for a moment and just in the quiet as you may have heard something from the person near you either quietly in your heart or aloud if you wish just gently pray for that person Just pray that the love of God would be poured out afresh through the Holy Spirit into their hearts. That the light of Christ would break the darkness and the power of the lies of the enemy that cause them to believe that God is not everything he claims to be. That light would shine. That light would overcome the darkness. Come Holy Spirit, minister to your people through your people. Break the power of wounds in our lives, Lord. Whether those are fathers, mothers, friends or brothers. Where there's been absence and distance. Where there's been judgment and criticism. Bring your healing, Lord Jesus. Shine your light. Give us courage to embrace a new dawn and a fresh revelation of who you are. For your glory we pray. 
understand that in a moment you get to experience his love. You're going to come and stand around a table and receive from him and consume bread and wine which to us are his body and his blood. That's how much he loves and gives of himself to you. We don't just remember, we participate afresh in this life as we receive. Allow the Lord to minister to you as you come. If you'd like people to pray with you, there'll be people to pray with you. If there's something the Lord is stirring in your mind and in your heart, receive through his people his blessing and his love afresh. Amen. All right, Tish is going to come.